This is a Rainier & Co. and Headline Productions podcast. Broken dreams are certainly not the exclusive territory of elite athletes. Indeed, most of us come to a point where we have to reassess the goals and dreams we've built our lives around. But for athletes who make it onto the world stage, the dreams they've built are the results of years of recognition and fostering of their unique ability. And with that exceptional talent comes exceptional expectations. Navigating through the early stages of a professional career requires a whole new set of skills. Being able to do it under pressure and having that correct mindset, that's next level stuff. The confronting reality is for most athletes, reaching that next level is simply improbable. So how do you come to terms with a career in sport when greatness is no longer an option? How do you redefine success without it simply equating to failure? For global single player sports like golf and tennis, the journey to the top can be incredibly challenging. One of the best examples of how complex a road to a sustainable career often is can be traced back to the Mediterranean coastal city of Antalya in Turkey. You know, flying into Turkey and then you know, walking out of the airport and there's armoured guards there and you, know, you get shuffled into a, into a bus and you've got a police escort and um, you, know, you go into the compound of your resort where you're staying and stuff. So you know, it was a real eye-opener. It's here in 2012 that three of Australia's hottest young golfers were on their way to compete in the World Amateur Team Championships and the Eisenhower Trophy. It's, it's the kind of the pinnacle of amateur golf. You know, it's the, it's the one team that you really you want to be in because there is no other high representation for amateur golfers in Australia. At 21 and 22 years old, Matthew Steiger and Daniel Nisbet were considered two of Australia's most promising talents. The younger and somewhat less known player of the team was 19-year-old Cameron Smith. Not to be confused with the rugby league player, laconic Queensland golfer Cam Smith has already made a cool $26 million in prize money alone and is now within the top 15 players in the world. For Matt and Dan, their trajectories have been very different. Matt now manages a pub in Wagga and gets time off every year to play the bigger events on the Australian tour. And since COVID hit, Dan has been working on the tools, installing roofing in Queensland. From Rainieri and Co and Headline Productions, this is a long haul, and I'm Emma Murray. Loneliness is indicative of modern society. It affects everyone at some point. It's part of the human condition. Thanks to Medibank, We Are Lonely is a podcast that seeks to demystify loneliness. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. We We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. Golf is a sport that polarises people. 
On the one hand, it's a symbol of elitism that's become the sport of choice for evil characters in film and television around the world. On the other hand, for the large amount of Australians that play the sport, it can be an obsessive passion. Now, I've got to be honest here, I haven't hit a golf ball since I was 12 years old when, encouraged by my parents, I did some junior clinics. But today, I'm at the Golf Australia Academy in Melbourne getting a lesson from the head coach, Dean Kinney. So the reason I say that is that will help you move your weight through the ball, which will give you a little bit... It looks like those clinics are finally paying off, though, because even though I haven't touched a golf club for several decades, it all seems to be coming back to me. Well, I would put it there just because the ball's on the tee, yeah. This is a brand new high performance facility that has been purpose built for the next generation of Australian golf stars. And it's hard not to feel just a little bit special simply by being here. Fabulous, well done. Awesome. I cleared the roof. It's awesome. Yeah. Oh. Terrific. So I reckon oh, now we're going to try it on the ground. Really? Yeah. Oh, that was from my brief reintroduction to golf, it seems to be a sport that gives you hope and then kills that hope all in the space of a few minutes. With my good shots seemingly used up, Dean steps up to the mat to illustrate a technique. It's ball. It's obvious he's a really good golfer. Around Australia, there are thousands of teaching golf bros that have started with dreams of making it big. But somewhere along that journey, dreams have had to be compromised. I remember the very first Pro-Am that I played in, I finished second and I won $960 or something. And I thought it was the most amount of money I'd ever seen. And so uh, I thought, gee, this is easy. You know, this game's easy. I can tell up all these guys. And uh, But it wasn't that easy. And uh, 15 years later, I was uh, still, you know, trying to make it and uh, the year that I stopped playing it was my best ever year as a professional I, you know I was New South Wales player of the year I'd won I think it was 10 or 11 sort of pro-ams and smaller events two-day events but I, just, I was away from home two-thirds of the year and um, with a few kids and I just found it really uh, challenging um, to balance the lifestyle of a professional sports person with um, with a family I suppose in my mid-30s. The fact that it was like your best year, were you not tempted to just give it one more crack? Uh, or it was really just like I still, I still am. I still am tempted to give it a crack. I you know, turn 50 next year, so you never know. Seniors to look out. While most professional athletes have around 10 years to define their career, golf is unique in that you can play it professionally into your 60s and 70s. In fact, in 2020, English golfer Richard Bland became the oldest first-time winner on the European Tour at the age of 48. It seems that in this sport, hope springs eternal. That best year that I had, you know, for the year I think I broke even. Um, and I won like 11 times and finished a couple of, you know, a couple of seconds in, in decent size events. But the expenses are so great to do that. Um, you're travelling all around big distances, accommodation. So in your best year, you break even, which must mean then in your not great years, you're not mm. earning any money and you've got a couple of kids. Um, I'm imagining this is not your story. This is the story of golf. What's the difference between 
you know, the the pro that ends up, you know, in a pro shop to someone that makes a hell of a lot of money from this game. I suppose the best story I can tell you with that, and this is this is a great example. So when I caddied for Cam Davis, um, he was the Australian amateur champion and we went over um, to America and he played uh, for the first time over there as the best player in the country and he was, he was the best player by a fair way. We played in a big big tournament over in America and he played amazingly well and he finished ninth. And I, we're doing our review after the round and I, after the tournament and I said, uh, I said, what did you learn from you know, the tournament, mate? And he said, there's hundreds of me in the world, Dean. I need to get way better. And I said, mate, that was worth every cent to come over here with you because when you're in Australia, you often feel like you're really good, but you don't know until you're out in the big world playing with, there's hundreds of me. someone in the top 100 men or women or both what are they making a year um well on the pga tour uh which is you know the, the main prize money sort of tour in the world and all the lpga tour um the hundredth athlete you know would be around a million dollars a year maybe a little bit more oh well they're certainly yeah so <laughs> certainly yeah. worth doing and the women's it? game a little bit less than yeah. that but um but really it drops off pretty quickly after that you could still make a living being in the top 500 in the men's game and probably, you know, I'd say the top 150 in the women's game, you could make a you could make a living, uh, a decent living, but it drops off um, because the expenses are so great. In golf, it's it's so challenging as everybody in any sport, in, in anything in life, really, to to get to the pinnacle of what you're doing. It's uh, you, it has to be an all-encompassing endeavor. It seems though with golf, it goes to another level. You know. Um an AFL player, a rugby player, they wake up with their family, they go into the club from, you know, seven in the morning till two in the afternoon. And it seems a lot more um, doable than travelling on your own and, you know, being away for so long. Mm. It's not all glamorous, is it? Yeah, the, the biggest feedback that we got from our athletes was was loneliness. So mm. when they were away from home for so long, travelling by themselves because the individual sport and they can't afford to bring their teams with them. They'd love to have you know, their private caddy and their coach and their physio and all that to travel with them. And really only the elite of the elite get that. Cameron Smith is now firmly placed as one of those elite. In January, 2022, he won the Tournament of Champions in Hawaii by the lowest total score ever recorded on the PGA Tour. He also earned $2 million in prize money from that one event. Meanwhile, back in Australia, his amateur playing partners' lives were very different. To understand those different trajectories, we need to go back to the beginning. We start here with Matt Steiger, a country boy from Narrabri. You know, I'd just hit golf ball after golf ball out into the back paddock and um, my dad actually parked our paddock basher. It was a Dado 120Y. He parked it in the back of the paddock and was like, all right, we'll keep hitting golf balls until you can hit it. So I actually trained my blue cattle dog uh, to chase golf balls and bring them back to me. I used to get up in the morning and smack a heap of golf balls out into the paddock and then come home from school and they're all at the back fence waiting to go again. <laughs> I think what really got me into golf was the fact that it was so hard and it frustrated me that I just wanted to be better. Growing up in a small town and, you know, coming from not much at all to, 
you know, moving to Sydney and playing golf and stuff like that. You know, my, my parents always taught me, especially my dad, he was like, the only way you're going to get noticed is to beat them. Um, so I think, you know, I've, I've really had a hunger for that attitude at an early age, um, especially playing football as well. I think that's where I sort of got my anger from was playing football. But when you're on a footy field, if you, if, you know, someone clips you around the chin or something, you just tackle them harder next time. Whereas on a golf course, if you hit a bad shot, well, you just, you can't do anything. So it's, it's, it's a lot harder to control those emotions, especially being so young and, you know, and knowing, I think that was the thing that I knew how good I was and how good I was going to be. But it was this fine line of being okay to hit a bad shot and like it's okay to play bad. Talking to Matt, it's obvious that in those early days, there was a conflict between his expectations and the reality of professional golf. What was also evident was that his natural talent was both a blessing and a curse. When I was playing full-time and, you know, I was such a good amateur and all these people were like, you're going to make it, you're going to be so good, you're going to be awesome. And then I kind of lost my way there. Like I just sort of floated for probably four or five years going, well, I know I'm good enough, but I'm not really putting in the effort to get better. Talent just took me so far that, you know, there'd be weeks where I'd be like, oh, well, I'm competing and I'm leading and I've got a chance to win and, you know, if I won, it was like, yep, I know I can do that. That's all good. But if I didn't win, I'd be so angry at myself because I put myself in a situation to win and didn't win. You know, I look back now and I see a lot of people have done the same as I did. They sort of went to Asia and got stuck there and never really progressed um, from there. Um, I mean, I was on the tour for six years in Asia. So, you know, keep my tour card, playing well enough, but just never took that next step uh, to go to Europe. I was actually going to Europe four days before COVID shut down the world. While most of the tours around the world had periods of shutdown during COVID, the Australian and Asian tours were hit hard. The stark reality for a lot of players was that, like airline pilots, they had to find other work. Dan Nisbet had a standout year in 2018 when he won the New Zealand Open. Like Matt, soon after the Eisenhower Trophy event in Turkey, he turned pro. I asked Dan what that transition was like. You become a a very small fish in a very big pond. It's kind of like, you know, you get to a professional tournament and no one knows who you are and you're just taking up space on the driving range and you've got to get out of the way for, you know, the bigger guys and the the guys that are set in in their own ways and if you're lucky enough, you can probably learn from a few of the, the guys that have been there and are willing to help. And so when you're looking at the golf side of it, is there a particular high that really stands out for you? The, the biggest high for me was winning in New Zealand. You know, Queenstown, that, that part of the world is just the most amazing scenery and you know, restaurants, tourism is just the most beautiful thing down in Queenstown and Arrowtown. Um, I could go back there any day of the week. And so at that point, are you thinking top 100, top 50, I'm on my way, it's a done deal? That gave me a few years worth of Asian tour status. And that's when like the travel really picked back up again. In eight or nine month stretch, I think I was only home for three weeks. You know, you, you look back and you, you look back at your folder with all your airline stubs and your ticket stubs and everything through and you do your expenses um, for the year and you, you do your tax return and you're just like, like where have I been? 
there's nothing better than getting a good result and there's nothing worse than having a bad result. So, and there almost feels like there's absolutely nothing in between most weeks, which is a little bit of inexperience as well. Looking back at top 10, you'd take a top 10 any day of the week. Um, but sometimes when, you, when you're out there, you feel like, oh, well, I should have won that. Or I should have come top three. I mean, you describe these, the highs and the lows, like the good games and the not great games and that there's nothing in between. That can feel a lot when it's for a stretch of eight months with nothing breaking it up. Especially through Southeast Asia, uh, that's a tough slog. A lot of people see the tourist side of Southeast Asia and oh, how nice it must be, but it's, um, we, we see some interesting places. Does one specific place or tournament where it was really difficult stand out for you? Uh, yeah, Korea. Korea, they call them love hotels. Anything that's not $400 a night, it's called a love hotel where you can rent the room for an hour. And so they're the hotels that you have to stay in for a week because that's the only thing you can afford in parts of Korea. It's very expensive over there. Yeah, you see some, you see some interesting things in the lobby every morning and <laughs> every, every night. While Matt and Dan were grinding it out on the Asian tour, their amateur World Cup playing partner, Cameron Smith, was getting opportunities on the lucrative US PGA tour. We weren't able to speak to Cam, but we did manage to speak to someone who's been alongside him throughout his career. Hi, I'm uh, Grant Field and uh, I'm Cam Smith's coach. and I've been working with Cam uh, since about the age of 10 or 11. I asked Grant what he thought were some of the things that made Cam's career so different. I think one of the things that Cam did and still continues to this day is he takes opportunity. He's got a, an amazing ability to rise to challenge. Um, I'd like to say that, you know, that was me, but the reality is that's something that he's got that he's, you know, um, that you can't coach and, you know, um, has, has definitely helped him along his way, that's for sure. People are expecting, you know, success straight out of the gate, whereas I think for us there was really no timeline or no expectation on where he was going to get to it's just if you just keep doing what you do well and you keep getting improving and getting better at it then you know you'll end up where you want to be one of the big challenges for any coach is to teach athletes that you've got to have urgency to play the long game so each day you're urgent to try and you know be better i've got to i've got to do the things i need to do today but in the end my mindset is I just know it's going to happen at some point. And that is an unbelievably difficult thing for anybody to, to always come with that excitement, um, to come to training when, you know, if your results haven't been on the board and, you, 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 you know, I get this all the time, you know, I've got to make the cut at this tournament or I've got to finish high in this week because I, I'm going to lose my card or I'm going to say you're always under pressure to perform. But the way to perform best is when you're not actually trying to perform best. What do you, what are your thoughts on luck in this game? Uh, look, it's definitely it, there. Definitely is such thing as luck. I've gone back and forward with this over my whole life. Like sometimes I've really believed in luck. Other times I've said, well, there's no such thing as luck. Um, it's all uh, you know. What did Gary Player say? You know, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Because there's so many elements in the game, there's definitely luck involved. There, you know, there, there has to be, and there is. I mean, you know, anybody that's played the game at a high level, you get you know things that happen. You know, but, but I think the luck evens itself out over the day or over the tournament. And when you win a tournament, you definitely need some lucky breaks. You know, the, the bad shot you hit just happens to be on the, the right hole where there's no water or there's no out of bounds or whatever. And so you get away with it. Sometimes you could argue it's created <laughs> and other times. But look, my opinion is I think to win at the elite level, you have to have luck on your side. 
out on tour, luck plays a part. But I think, you know, to be good, you know, and to turn out, like a lot of people talk about, oh, if you can have that one good week, one good week's not enough to make a career, you know. So, you know, somebody like Cam has had a lot of very, very good weeks, you know. So luck starts to play less of a part and, and you know, just his ability and his ability to take, you know, like I said, opportunity plays more of a part than, than what luck does. As a performance coach, I'm fascinated to see what tools different athletes use to perform under pressure. Coping with the anxiety and nerves of walking onto a field with 80,000 people watching you, or in Cam's case, standing on the first tee at the Masters, can be incredibly challenging. So how do they do it? The nerves are always there. Like They're not superhuman. They don't go without you know the, the self-talk or the self-doubt, but they're just better at re- sort of focusing their energies on what they want to do. You know, a lot of people relate nervousness or anxiety to poor performance, whereas, you know, we sort of relate it to it's just part of the game. You know, like there's nobody out there that's not feeling a lot of what you're feeling, you know. It's just that they're better at doing it, you know, under that situation. Like this is what you sign up for, you know. <laughs> yeah, when you're absolutely crapping yourself, but, you know, on the other side of that is something pretty amazing, you know, like, we sign up for that and if you if you want to be a part of that that's what you've got to deal with players at that level relish that challenge you know where a lot of us would look at it and go oh, i'd be crapping myself you know they're going i live for this for male players like matt and dan being sustainable in the long run when you're not winning is incredibly challenging but for australian female players it's even harder. Sarah Kemp was an outstanding amateur and like Matt and Dan, she also played in the World Amateur Team Championships. That was in 2004 in Puerto Rico. Now in her mid-30s, Sarah has been playing on the US, European and Australian tours for 14 years. I asked her how she sustained her career for so long, even though she's never won a professional tournament. This year, I've actually had my best year on the LPGA. I, I finished 63 on the points list. Um, and a, a lot of people say that. It's like, yeah, you, you're still doing this. And I guess I just, I never gave up, you know. And and it's different because golf, you know, a top 10 is can still be a win. Um, you know, like obviously, you know, first place is a win and the second place and third place. But um, I had three top tens this year and they were kind of like mini wins for me. But potentially now that you're 35, like you're coming into your best career, do you feel like that's what keeps you there? Like that desire to tick off I've played my best golf? Yes, and just just loving, you know, what I do for a living. Like even a bad day at golf, um, no offence to anybody that, that sits behind a desk, but for me, you know, a bad day at golf feels like it's going to be better than, than sitting at a desk all day. Coming up after this quick break, we discover how Sarah managed the pressure of expectations in her early career. For me, I feel like I have one of the best jobs in the world. I play sport for a living and get to walk around a golf course every day, whether it's good golf or bad, um, kind of keeps me going um, and getting a little bit better each year, um, which is sort of not the trend that I thought would, how it would go. I thought I'd, I'd be a little bit better earlier on in my career. You say that like you're surprised that you weren't better early on. Was that a case of just taking 
a while to get settled on the tour or why do you think you weren't able to play your best golf earlier? When I was a junior and, and an amateur um, in Australia, Kari Webb was number one in the world at the time. And I remember getting compared to her a little bit, you know, like, okay, you know, go out and be another Kari. And, you know, she's a Hall of Famer and, you know, even having a quarter of her career is incredible. But I think I put a bit too much pressure on myself in the beginning and just thought, you know, like, oh my God, I, I you know, I didn't start like Kari. Like, what's wrong with me? You know, making the transition from amateur golf, playing for, for trophies versus actually playing for a living definitely took me a few years to settle settle down into. You know, we all have this idea of what a professional golfer looks like, but in those early days, are you, you know, in average accommodation? Are you playing golf every day? What does it look like? Yeah, it's whatever the cheapest flight, the cheapest hotel, the cheapest car rental. I can remember driving across France um, and I was traveling with a, a couple of other girls and car rental was super expensive um, and we could only afford the, the smallest car. Um, it was a two-door and there was four of us and we had you know, four sets of golf clubs and four suitcases and we made it work. I was sitting in the back and, um, you know, basically had a golf bag and a suitcase in my face. So I wouldn't have called it glamorous, but as a, a 20-year-old, it was, it was fine. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't change it. It was, it was a great experience. What do you think is the difference between being a good golfer and then being an elite golfer? You know, certainly an elite golfer that makes that sort of top 50 type ranking. Um, it's probably mindset. You know, I, I see, you know, the girls on the LPGA now, especially the top sort of 50 in the world, you know, you can just kind of see it. Like there's something about them, especially the way that they mentally get themselves around a golf course. You know, there's so many girls that can hit a straight drive down the middle or, you know, hole a 20 footer, but being able to do it under pressure and having that correct mindset, um, that's that's next level stuff in, in golf for sure. Is it the mindset on the course, but also the mindset off the course, you know, to be alone, to go from hotel to hotel, be away from family and friends, you know, sometimes be, you know, not able to um, know where your next dollar's coming from. Is it that mindset to cope with that as well and slug it out on that side of the game? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's it's a slog, um, especially in your first few years. Uh yeah, if you can, you know, mentally get through the grind as well off the golf course is, is a huge factor. Yeah, you sort of talk about the grind and and you talk about, you know, having to have that that resilience. Did you ever reach a point where it was like, if I don't win soon, I can't afford to do this? Three years ago, I had actually lost my card on the LPGA and my bank balance was was very low and I ended up getting a sponsor for the following year and it didn't really make sense to me at the time you know I kind of had to tell him I'm like you know I lost my card right like you know you're sponsoring me but you know I don't really have any status for next year and I told him that I was I had some status on the European tour and I was going to go over there and I was thinking about getting into teaching um, a little bit and just going to play a couple of tournaments um, on the European tour the following year and ended up coming back to Australia and we always have the Australian Open and the Vic Open at the beginning of the year and they're co-sanctioned with the LPGA Tour and I finished second and basically got my LPGA card straight back. Um, so it was probably why I'm, I'm still on the LPGA today. For professional golfers, keeping your card and playing on the top tours around the world is key to making good money. 
staying on those tours can often come down to sinking or missing a part. For most Australian players, the simple reality is, if you want to have a financially sustainable career, you have to play overseas. For pros like Sarah, having the financial support of a sponsor is often the difference between playing for a living or finding another source of income. You know, though, that sort of sliding door moment you're talking about with someone coming in and sponsoring you and that enabling you to have another crack. I'm wondering how many golfers and tennis players and, you know, people on these individual sports that are off on these tours, how many we lose because it gets to that pivotal moment where they just, it's like, I just can't do this one more tournament. I can't, I I have to eat, I have to live. And we lose potentially great athletes just because they reach a point where I can't make it work any longer. So on the tour, 100 um, keeps your card for the next year. And throughout the last, you know, 14, 15 years, I've, I've really battled around that 100 number every single year. Um, you know, some years I've finished outside it and had to go back to Q school. And just to enter from the beginning, um, you know, with a caddy and accommodation and flights, and it's probably a twenty twenty five thousand $25,000 process just to, to, to get onto the tour. And that's not to mention, you know, how much you need to spend after that. Uh, but um, I'm sure, uh, yeah, I, I knew some players that couldn't afford to to make it to the Q school. So it, yeah, it's it's super tough. I'm I'm sure it's like that um, in all other sports as well. And how do you know when you're playing that golf that is your best golf? So you said I'm sort of hanging in there. I still think my best in in front of me. Like, how do you know when you reach it? What are you striving for? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I feel like in golf, it's all about you know even improving 1% is is a really big deal. Finishing a little higher on the standings than I did this year would, would probably be a um, you know the goal for, for next year, but I haven't won a, an event yet. I finished second and third and uh, but yeah probably when I when I win one I, I can say that I've probably played my best golf. As I listen to Sarah explain what keeps her going, I find it hard not to admire the value she places on loving what she does for a living. Professional sport is defined by winning and losing. But for players like Sarah, a sustainable career doesn't always fit those parameters. Matt, Dan and Sarah have all had to redefine that narrative. And in reality, the vast majority of athletes will have to do this. We've got this perception that everybody should be good at, you know, 20 years of age or 21, otherwise you're not going to make it. And it's absolute garbage. I mean, there's plenty of early developers that haven't been good later on, you know, and then there's others that will just continue to improve and continue to improve. And all of a sudden, you know, they might be 27, 28, 29, 30, and they start playing, you know, getting to those tours. And I think um, we focus too much on the end, like I said, and, and where we've got to get to to be deemed a success, you know, and whereas the reality is there's so many amazing moments that happen along the way. I mean, you listen to a lot of the players, some of their fondest memories is when they were playing, you know, Australasian, Asian, you know, tours where they were travelling as a group, you know, amateur golf when they played interstate series. You know, most of them, that's the stuff they love. And and every time, you know, one of the players I work with, you know, makes a big check, I, I say to them, do you feel any different? And they go, no, 
you know, so whilst the money's nice and allows them to do things and, and buy shinier things, the reality is that's not what they live for. You know, it's those moments that really, I think they'll all look back on in, in time and, and realise that was the special stuff. For Dan Nisbet, his definition of success is to keep playing golf at the highest level possible for as long as possible. I, I can see there being a point where, you know, a part of my body won't won't let me do what I want to do, but I, I don't want that to be what stops me. You know, se- stepping back from the game over the last two years has just been the best eye-opening experience to how good a how good a job golf is, <laughs> how good a full-time job golf can be. You know, even when a top 10 is just absolutely magic compared to a, a day at 36 degrees on the tools. For Matt Steiger, who now manages a pub, the definition of success lies within gratitude. As a kid, I'd, you know, get a golf magazine and see all these amazing golf courses overseas and pictures of that and, you know, Adam Scott overseas, Jason Day, Greg Norman, you know, those guys and you you know, you think, oh, wow, that's that's pretty amazing. You know, if I can have some sort of opportunity like that, fortunately enough, it sort of it definitely paid off. I mean, you know, for my mum and dad's 20th wedding anniversary, I bought them passports and took them overseas for six weeks and, you know, things like that that, you know, it's it's hard enough to get my mother past the 80K sign <laughs> to leave Narrabri, so let alone get her on a plane to fly, you know, over to Philippines, Thailand and stuff like that was just an incredible experience and, you know, something I'm very thankful for, obviously, being able to do that for my parents. So it's pretty incredible to be 30 years old. I've travelled the world, I'm on my third passport, and I've got my name on a pub. Yeah, very true. Does that mean that's it for golf? No, definitely not. Um, I'm quite lucky with the role that I'm in now that the owner of the pub is actually an absolute golf nutter. You know, he's been pushing me to make sure that I keep playing golf because he wants to travel with me and come to the Australian Open and Australian PGA and stuff like that. So. It's very handy because, you know, I'm in a great opportunity that, you know, there's not many general managers of a venue that can still take 12 weeks off a year to go and compete and play golf. In a moment, we discover some redefined versions of success. For me now, it's it's just so much more enjoyable because I can go to events now and I'm not thinking, oh, you know, have I got enough money to fly to the next event? You know, because I've got a solid income now, so then I can actually go to an event and I can enjoy it. And there's no pressure of, well, I need to make this part, otherwise I can't get to the next event. I need to practice probably harder than, than I ever have. There are younger girls coming out now that are really, really good. Um, and I need to keep up with them by, by practicing a little harder. But um, I, I really still love it. You know, we define success, unfortunately, by dollars earned. And, you know, for a lot of people, success is doing this as a living, you know, for a long period of time. So I've got players who, who do a really nice job who probably may never get to the US or the European tour, but they'll do this for 20 years and love every bit of it. You know, and I think it's important to realise that success isn't just, you know, the shiny stuff we see on TV. True to his word, in early 2022, Matt Steiger played in the Australian PGA Championship in Queensland, where he tied for 40th. Not bad for a full-time pub manager, part-time professional golfer. Sarah Kemp was booked to play in the same event, but got COVID shortly after arriving in Australia. She's now back in the US and hoping her form will continue to improve. Meanwhile, 
Dan Nisbet is hoping to down the tools and head back on the Asian tour, albeit with more tempered expectations. There's always another skilling golf, that's the great thing. No matter how good you think you are, um, even for me, like I learned something. As I was about to leave my golf lesson with Dean, a young player came up to us. She told us about how she'd just arrived back from the US where she had won a Lamborghini for getting a hole-in-one during a tournament. I start my somewhat less expensive car and watch as she hits ball after ball at the practice range. As I drive away, I look back in my rearview mirror and think to myself, maybe it's not too late. Next on The Long Haul, we take you inside the world game down under. Craig Foster, Andy Harper, Bill Papastergiadis, Jade North and Brendan Schwab attempt to help Emma understand why the most played team sport in Australia brings less people to stadiums and less eyes on screens than AFL and NRL. The Long Haul is brought to you by Ranieri & Co and Headline Productions. This episode of The Long Haul was produced by Simon Portis and me, Liz Keane. Our host is Emma Murray. Editing was by Simon Portis and theme music was by Kenneth Lample. Special thanks to Trevor Clayton, Grant Field, Dean Kinney, Daniel Nisbet, Matthew Steiger and Sarah Kemp. <laughs>